Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon the generous financial contributions of our listeners in order to continue bringing Fighting for the Faith to you. Uh, would you please uh, support Fighting for the Faith financially by joining our crew or sending in a donation to uh, support us financially? You can do so by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. Click on the Join Our Crew button. That's a mere $6.95 a month. Or if you'd like to make a flat contribution, you can do so by clicking on the Donate button or making your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and sending it to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. Thank you for your support. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith. Monday, August 23rd, 2010. Now, if you follow me on Facebook, if you're my friend on Facebook, you'll know that there has been some rip-roaring debate, dialogue regarding the Ground Zero Mosque. And I think that's exactly the right thing that should be happening. We need to be talking about this. Get the issues out on the table. Come up with a plan, a strategy, some good rhetoric. Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Rosebro, and I am your servant in Jesus Christ. And this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which is to help you to think biblically, to help you to think critically, and to compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. That's our primary objective, and uh, we get to that. And, uh, in fact, that's what we do here. If you've listened to Fighting for the Faith, that seems to be the axe that we grind here on a daily basis. Now, last week, uh, we talked, I talked a little bit about the Ground Zero Mosque and my take on it. And, uh, it has, uh, it has to do with the fact that, uh, I've been reading a lot about how people have used the Hegelian dialectic as a means of moving public opinion. And, uh, I'm not very thrilled with the way things are moving in the, in public opinion, opinion because, uh, I still am absolutely convinced the topic is being demagogued and used politically to move us farther away from our religious freedoms and liberty. And so if you haven't heard that edition of Fighting for the Faith, it's on the website, it's on the podcast, you should be able to go and and take a listen to. Now, I, I'm perfectly open to the idea that I may be wrong. And uh, since posting that particular edition of Fighting for the Faith, uh, there has been a lot of discussion on the Internet, on Twitter, on Facebook, and blogs regarding what I said in that program. And there are people who vehemently disagree with me, and that's okay, especially in this particular situation. The reason why is because when it comes to the Ground Zero Mosque, I'm not pro talking about Christian dogma here. Uh, what I'm trying to do is navigate between the kingdom of the right and the kingdom of the left. As a Lutheran, we talk about the right-hand kingdom and the left-hand kingdom. And ultimately, my goal is to get people to listen carefully to their rhetoric and the sides that they've already chosen and consider the ramifications of the things that they're proposing. And the reason why is because ideas don't exist in a vacuum. And so um, you know, those who are uh, strongly opposed to the Ground Zero Mosque, that has implications that play out if it's if the rhetoric in there is sloppy 
and we don't really do a good job of defining our terms and what it is that we're actually pushing for. What exactly are we hoping for here? And how does that play into the First Amendment, which guarantees um, our religious freedoms and liberties? And so um, there's been several really good, in-depth, obviously, uh, the people who wrote them took time to write pieces that uh, where people are taking my ideas to task and debating them. And uh, I would bring up uh, the the post by Paula and Jason Coyle on their Purpose Drivel uh, blog site, which I think is absolutely worth a read. And uh, Daniel Needs uh, from the United Kingdom, he has uh, put together a, v- a very lengthy uh, blog post uh, talking about the things that he thinks that I may have missed, and it's absolutely worth the read. And I think if you, uh, if, what am I going to do here? Um, I'll tell you what I'll do is I'll put up the links to um, Daniel Needs's uh, response and uh, Paula Coyle's, at uh, Paula and Jason Coyle's response to what I've said on the air. I'll put the links up at the Fighting for the Faith website. So when this edition of Fighting for the Faith goes online. Uh, I'll, if you, you'll see run underneath the, um, uh, the listen button, there will be a thing that says program notes. And what I'll do in the program notes for this edition of fighting for the faith is link to, uh, the two very well-written and lengthy, uh, you know, rebuttals to what I said, uh, by, uh, Daniel needs and, uh, Paula and Jason Coyle. I, I think it's worth the read. You know, to kind of bring you up to speed on on what some people are saying. That being the case, uh, th- that being said, though, I'm going to read one uh, very succinct um, uh, response that I got on my Facebook wall uh, that I think kind of encapsulates some of the greater concerns uh, regarding this mosque thing. And uh, I'll, I'll be reading that and then linking to uh, Paula and Jason Coyle's blog post and. Uh, Daniel needs this one. Uh, and again, my goal really is is to get uh, there to be you know, take go and l- really research this and consider your rhetoric. And if the, if that turns into action, what those actions would be as far as uh, what implications would that have regarding our greater religious liberties in the long run? Because with Islam, we're dealing with uh, a very unique animal. And because uh, uh, Sharia and Islam are all mixed up so tightly together that uh, you can't pull the two apart. So, um, you know, but uh, we don't live in a Christian theocracy. You know, we live in a constitutional republic that says that people have the right to practice their religion and uh, and, and to believe as, as, as they want. So, you know, we got some we, we got to navigate this stuff in such a way that uh, that our response is informed it's not knee jerk and our our um what it is that we propose doesn't ultimately end up cutting off our religious liberties in the long run you don't want to cut off your nose to spite your face now i've never i i've never really kind of considered that particular statement you don't want to cut off your nose to spite your face i've never heard of anybody doing this uh, but I can imagine it's probably not a very pleasant thing and, and might uglify you in the long run. So today's edition of Fighting for the Faith, I'm going to read one Facebook response that is a succinct uh, to the point. Because uh, on my Facebook wall, one of the things I said is, I, you know, I, to those who are opposed to the Ground Zero Mosque, can you give me three, can you just summarize your three best arguments against why, uh, against the Ground Zero Mosque and why you believe it should not be built 
and should be, you know, forbidden from being built. Why, you know, you know, why do you give me your top three reasons why the owners there shouldn't be allowed to practice their freedom of religion or their right to uh, use their private property in this way? Because ultimately, it kind of come boils down to that issue, and. Uh, and so there's been a lot of discussion on my Facebook wall, but again, I want to read one succinct thing, and then uh, please, I am encouraging you to visit the Fighting for the Faith website and then read the uh, the lengthy rebuttals written by Paula Coyle and Daniel Needs. Worth the read, worth the read to uh, kind of help put this all into perspective. Some good stuff being brought up there. All right, uh, with that in mind, let's talk about the program. Uh, so I'm going to read the uh, listener, uh, re- the one listener response on my Facebook wall. And then we've got three things we're going to do from there. Uh, I want to talk about a group called BioLogos. Uh, I may have mentioned them in a previous edition of Fighting for the Faith. I'm absolutely convinced that this is a very, very dangerous group. And um, it, there's been a lot of movement on this. So today we're going to take a look at some BioLogos issues. One is is that they've got a video that they put up asking the question, is there a historical atom? We're going to be listening to the audio from that uh, from that video, and uh, then time permitting, I want to tackle one of the, the other things that's going on here. Is the BioLogos uh, guys are taking shots at uh, Albert Mueller, and they're doing it at the Huffington Post of all places. I mean, interesting. I mean, if that doesn't divulge a few things there, that should. And so we're going to do that today. We're going to take a look at some BioLogos bio issues. And then we're going to continue listening to Scott McKnight's interview with Brian McLaren. This will be part three. And today we get to question three that Scott McKnight asked him. We, it took us uh, two editions of this installment to, uh, or two installments to get to uh, through uh, question two. We skipped question one, by the way. I didn't think it was uh, radio worthy. But we're going to do uh, question three today and hopefully get that done. And then our sermon review comes to us via LCBC in Mannheim, Pennsylvania. And the name of it is Mad Men, the Impulsive. And um, listening to this sermon, um, wow, we've got some radical redefining of grace going on. And uh, so we need to uh, uh, take a look at this sermon and and, and tease this apart. But anyway, um, so that's what we're going to be doing on today's edition of Fighting for the Faith. With that in mind, make yourself comfortable and all of our normal things apply here, fuzzy bunny slippers, adult beverages, the whole nine yards. You, you know our tradition here at Fighting for the Faith. So with that, we're going to dive into the program proper, and um, let's get at it. From my Facebook wall... Which you can find, by the way, at uh, facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. You have to ask to be fr- my friend, though. Yeah, you have to ask me. If I, if I deny you, well, then I consider you an enemy. Actually, uh, there's only, a, I mean, maybe two, three people that I've ever unfriended on Facebook. So, yeah, I, I allow people to disagree with me. So, uh, James Joseph Fire. Now, he, uh, the the reason I chose his uh, Facebook wall post is because it's succinct and he really argues lucidly and in a, in a tight little way. And uh, I like some of the points that he's making and understand he's taking an opposite view of me, of my view regarding the uh, the Ground Zero Mosque. So James Joseph Fire writes, he says, in any nation where Islam is permitted, 
it takes on a non-conciliatory stand in proportion to its obtaining of of power. It makes all the demands for its own rights of expression while being while being entirely intolerant of any other view. Look at Dear, Dearborn, Michigan. I, you know, I I recently heard somebody uh, referring to Dearborn, Michigan, is as Dearborn, Pakistan. Yeah. Anyway, he says, look at Europe and and look at England. Look at Saudi Arabia. I was a missionary in Europe preaching the gospel to Muslims way back in 1987, and the atmosphere even then was one of conquest. A slogan then was, quote, England is our gateway to to the conquest of Europe. Meanwhile, those who remain conciliatory towards Islam are seen as weak and this only encourages the proponents of Islam to push the envelope even further. This is why Israel, by necessity, must maintain a strict intolerance of foreign Islamic powers that overtly threaten her existence. A slight indication of weakness or tolerance will bring a firestorm sooner rather than later. While the issue has obvious uh, political ramifications, the stark reality is that Islam is Sharia and Sharia is Islam. So says Nani Darwish, author of the of Cruel and Unusual Punishment. Under Sharia law, non-Muslims are are called dimmi or virtual slaves. Islam will use whatever means it can, politics, economics, social pressure, to gain the upper hand over those they would submit to the will of their God, Allah. I also share a certain degree of Christine's, this is Christine Pack's, hands-off approach to political activism, but mostly because I realize, like her, that our warfare is not political in nature, but spiritual. We are responsible for political action to ensure the well-being of our nation and our prosperity, however. Having said all that, I think the building of that Islamic facility at Ground Zero is a mistake, that it placates the Islamic agenda and will be viewed by the forces of Islam as an encouraging victory that will seek to uh, pursue further concessions. There are already hundreds of mosques in New York City, why have another of such grand proportions, if not to declare a victory over America, where thousands of Americans lost their lives to those of the same ideology? Uh, James, uh, thank you for your Facebook comment, and I, I don't think it needs any comment. I think you you argued your case really well. And um, Christine Pack, also on my uh, Facebook wall, uh, made, it, uh, uh, made an important point, and it's worth highlighting. And that is, is that Islam is the is who was responsible for the attacks on 9-11. It was Islam who attacked us. It wasn't Iran. It wasn't Iraq. It wasn't Afghanistan that attacked the United States on 9-11. It was Islam. So now that that all being said, this uh, we're providing a, a counterpoint here to uh, the things that I said. With all of this information now that you have, here's the question I would have for you all is what knowing that Islam is Sharia and Sharia is Islam. In the United States, the Constitution guarantees all citizens have the right to believe as they want. They have freedom of religion. Okay. Um, what should our policy be regarding Islam? 
Now, if we were to just outright outlaw the religion, you know, and basically say anybody who talks of Sharia is considered to be, uh, you know, speaking treasonously against the United States, uh, that, you know, do we have precedent for such a thing? How how would we decide which religious talk we're going to tolerate and which religious talk we won't tolerate? I might see my big concern is that we're going to end up um, cutting our own throats politically if we, uh, you know, don't watch our rhetoric carefully in such a way, in basically monitor in such a way that we don't sacrifice our constitutional liberties uh, in the face of, uh, of of a threat like this. Now that being said, I mean, realistically, what can we do? How? What? What can we do? See, I again, I don't think this is a this is going to be solved politically. I would prefer that the United States government continues to take a hands-off approach uh, and allow people the right to practice their own religion so that we can have this free marketplace of ideas and that Christians take the stand that Islam doesn't stand a chance against Christianity in a fair fight. And the reason why is because they don't have a real God. They have a false deity, a demon that they worship. Whereas we, on the other hand, have a crucified and risen Lord and Savior who is King of Kings and Lord of Lords, and our weapons are not of this world. The weapons we fight with basically have the ability to tear down strongholds, Scripture says. Isn't Islam a stronghold of oppression and slavery and false religion? Has our God not given us powerful weapons for tearing down exactly those types of strongholds? Well, that being the case, if uh, the church would put away its uh, distraction, you know, in trying to be seeker sensitive and relevant and placatory and pluralistic and instead adopt a more Christian militant, militant stance. And what I mean by a Christian militant stance is, is that I'm not talking about swords. I'm not talking about guns. I'm not talking about. Um, knives and battles and things like that. I'm talking about proclaiming repentance and the forgiveness of sins in Jesus' name and aggressively refuting the false claims of Islam in the hopes of basically evangelizing them and letting God the Holy Spirit convert them from their false religion. I've had the opportunity to talk to a few people who have spent some time as missionaries to Islam. One guy in particular who... uh uh, who who does broadcasting into Iran of all places, and it, these folks tell me that the people who live under Sharia law law in these Muslim countries that many of them are fed up and to uh, fed up to hear with it, and they're really looking for something different, and this is to be understood this way, of course, because the the uh, Islam is nothing but law. There is no gospel in Islam, and it's just the type of thing that people wither under. And they desire true freedom. And so that being the case, I mean, what we're talking about is people who are enslaved to a false religious system that watches their every move and and does horrible and atrocious things and ugly things to human beings. And what and Christianity offers them freedom. Not the United States, but Christianity. True, real freedom, freedom from a false religion, freedom from having to placate a demonic God who cannot be placated, who demands 
that you follow the letter of his Sharia law to the to the T or else suffer the consequences. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm telling you, we can take them. I'm I'm serious. How on earth can Islam stand up against Christianity when Christianity militantly preaches the gospel and wields the weapons that God has given us? I don't see how Islam even has has a chance. Not against the one true God. Not against the God who created the heavens and the earth in six days. Not against Jesus Christ who rose victorious from the grave. No way. Christianity defeated the polytheistic paganism of Rome and did it within five centuries of its emergence on the scene. You think that was an accident? That is a fruit of the gospel of Jesus Christ and the fruit of those who wielded the weapons given to us by Christ. These are not weapons to kill people. These are weapons to take every thought captive and make it obedient to Christ. And Islam cannot stand up against it, will not be able to stand up against it, because Islam is built on a lie. Anyway, enough of that. So moving along on today's edition of Fighting for the Faith, um, I want to talk about BioLogos. Let me um, hit the vintage news music here. Where do I want to go with this, man? Um, yeah. Is there a historical atom? Yeah, from the BioLogos Forum Science and Faith in Dialogue. That's the, the BioLogos' website. Uh, their slogan is Science and Faith in Dialogue. And uh, the question on this uh, particular thing that was posted on August 14, 2010, uh, category guest features, it, it features a... Um, uh, a small little video with a theologian by the name of Tremper Longman. Tremper Longman, by the way, is the <clears throat> Robert H. Gundry Professor of Biblical Studies at Westmont College in Santa Barbara, uh, as well as the visiting professor of Old Testament at Mars Hill Graduate School and an and adjunct of Old Testament at Fuller Theological Seminary. He is the author of over 20 books, including Upcoming Science, Creation, and the Bible, Reconciling Rival Theories of Origins, with physicist Richard F. Carlson. So Tremper Longman is going to answer the question, is there a historical Adam? And I want you to hear his comments, because I'm going to be asking one of my normal questions here at Fighting for the Faith, and that is, who are you going to believe? Are you going to believe Jesus Christ, who clearly believed that Adam and Eve were real historical people, that Cain and Abel were real historical people, uh, believe that God created the heavens and the earth, literally, or are you going to believe Tremper Longman? So the question is, is there a historical Adam? And we'll I'll comment appropriately. By the way, by a logos, these folks are bad news, bad Bad news. I have no respect for their scholarship and their science or what they're doing at all. A lot of people believe that Genesis 1 and 2 sort of insists on the idea that there is one literal historical atom. And they might go on and say, and that little historical atom was created by a special act of God and and not a result of, say, an evolutionary 
process. Um, yeah, because, you know, when you read Genesis 1 and 2, it says that God formed Adam from the dust of the earth. You know, let's, uh, <clears throat> let's if you have your Bibles, let me, let's go ahead and flip over there. Now, as you're listening to Tremper Longman III here, um, uh, what I'd like you to keep in mind is that Genesis 1 and 2 is not the only place, is not even close to the only place where Adam is mentioned. And so the question is, is there a historical Adam? That's the question that's on the table. But if we go to Genesis, let me go one through three on my on my Bible here on my internet on my website, not my website, my computer. Oh, what am I thinking? Okay, let's see. All right, here we go. Genesis chapter two. I'm going to start at verse five. Here's what it says. Now, when no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground. And a mist was going up from the land and and was watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man out of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed, and out of the ground... Uh, the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for the, uh, for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Pretty straightforward. It says that God formed Adam from the dust. You can't read this and go, well, that's just figurative. What in the story would indicate that this is figurative? Jesus himself says that in the beginning God created them male and female. It says God created. doesn't say they evolved. Doesn't they, uh, So the question on the table, is there a historical Adam? Now, uh, Tremper here is engaging in select, selective um, Bible knowledge at this point. Oh, well, there's nothing in uh, Genesis 1 and 2 that indicates that it, you know, it has to be. Well, let's listen again and see if you can catch what's going on here by a special act of god and and not a result of literal historical access on people believe that genesis 1 and 2 sort of insists on the idea that there is one literal historical adam and they might go on and say and that little historical Adam was created by a special act of God and and not a result of, say, an evolutionary process. Um, you know, there are a lot of difficult questions associated with it, but but I think you could only insist on the idea that there's one historical Adam if you read Genesis 1 in a very highly literalistic way. Hmm, okay, so you could only if you read it in a very highly literalistic way. Can you offer a different way for me to read this passage? Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. And then the Lord God planted a garden of Eden in Eden and put him in to work in the garden. Uh, what in this part of Genesis 2, uh, in, where, where are you getting this idea that we shouldn't be taking this literally? Okay. Um, hang on a second here. Let me uh, pull something up on my computerized Bible here. 
And uh, let's see here. By the way, um, the uh, the biblical author Luke um, seems to take um, Adam as a f- literal person, by the way. Notice that uh, Tremper here, he's, in, he's basically not bringing us the full counsel of the Word of God at all. Here's, uh, I don't want to read this whole thing, but I'm going to begin, I'm going to begin at Luke chapter 3, uh, verse 23. It says, Jesus, when he began his ministry, was about 30 years of age, being the son, as it was supposed, of Joseph, the son of Heli, the son of Mathat, the son of Levi, the son of Melchi, the son of Jani, the son of Joseph, the son of Matthias, uh, the son of Amos, the son of Nahum, the son of Elsie, the son of Nagai. And it goes on and on and on to um, some more, go back in time, uh, uh, who was the son of Admin, the son of Arni, the son of Hezron, the son of Perez, the son of Judah, the son of Jacob, the son of Isaac, the son of Abraham, the son of Terah, the son of Nahor. Uh, I mean, is Nahor... Judah, Perez, Terah, are any of these guys considered to be um, not historical people? The son of Sarug, the son of Reu, the son of Peleg, the son of Eber, the son of Shelah, the son of Canaan, the son of Arphaxad, the son of Shem, the son of Noah, the son of Lamech, the son of Methuselah, the son of Enoch, the son of Jared, the son of Mahalil, the son of Canaan, the son of Enos, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. Um, what in Luke chapter 3 would indicate that when it gets down to Seth and Adam, that really Luke had in mind figurative, mythological, not literal people? This entire genealogy of Jesus presupposes the historicity of everyone in the list. And there's no indication in the text that we should take any of it figuratively. There's more, okay? If you were to do a um, search in the Old Testament and, uh, and you were to look for the word Adam in the Old Testament, we come to Hosea chapter 6, verse 7. But Adam, but like Adam, they transgressed the covenant. Uh, there they dealt faithlessly with me. God, the Yahweh speaking to the prophet Hosea, talks about the fact that Adam transgressed his covenant and dealt treacherously with him. You see, without a literal Adam, if we only have a figurative Adam, then we don't have any understanding of where sin came from or death, or anything like that. In fact, turning Genesis into fantasy completely undermines the entire mission of Jesus Christ, who, by the way, was promised by God to Adam and Eve as the seed who would crush the head of the serpent. Jesus was the literal, uh, basically the literal fulfillment of that prophecy given in Genesis chapter 3. So he was the seed who was promised to Adam and Eve, who would crush the head of the serpent, and whose heel would be bruised by the serpent. Hmm. So where in the Bible, I mean, over and over and over again, um, we've got example after example 
of Adam being referred to literally. Uh, Romans chapter 5, verse 14. Death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. 1 Corinthians 15.22, For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all shall be made alive. 1 Corinthians 15.45, Thus is written, The first man, Adam, became a life uh, a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. 1 Timothy 2.13, For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. A transgressor. Mm-hmm. Uh, Jude chapter, uh, sorry, Jude verse 14. It was also about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with 10,000 of his holy ones. Yeah, you know, see, when you take in the entire spectrum of all of the data revealed about Adam in the scriptures, all of it, not selectively cherry-picking some of it and saying, oh, well, there's nothing here to indicate that we should take this literally. No, when you... Scripture interprets Scripture. When you take all of the data in Scripture regarding Adam, there is nothing, nothing to indicate that Adam and Eve were figurative people, that they were not literal. In fact, over Jesus Christ himself said that God created them male and female, alluding to the Genesis story. Talked about the blood of righteous Abel, the blood of of righteous Abel. Yeah, who was, you know, because Abel was murdered by his older brother Cain. Um, Yeah, Jesus never spoke of these people as figurative. So again, when you take the entire summary of what's in the scriptures, you can't come up with the conclusions that Tremper Longman III here is uh, coming up with. And yet he's a theologian who, who teaches at Westmont College in Santa Barbara, Fuller Theological Seminary and is now, you know, working hand in hand with Biologos. Yeah, there's there's something seriously wrong here. Let me back this up just a little bit and we'll continue. Process. Um, you know, there are a lot of difficult questions associated with it, but but I think you could only insist on the idea that there's one historical atom if you read Genesis 1 in a very highly literalistic way. Yeah, you mean the way Jesus did. You mean the way the other biblical writers did. Which, by, by the way, all scriptures God breathed. Who are you going to believe, Jesus or this guy? Rather than then understanding that it is uh, using ancient Near Eastern concepts to express how God did create the first human beings. I, I just personally don't think that Genesis 1 and 2 prohibits the idea that there is a evolutionary process and that... Really, go ahead then and show me from the text where God revealed that he used an evolutionary process. Um, and whether there's sort of one moment when God says, this is the first human being, and it is one individual, or whether, you know... Yeah, that's exactly what the text says. And that's exactly what Jesus said. That's exactly what the other authors of the scriptures say. Sir, do you know better than the men who were inspired by the Holy Spirit to write the scriptures? Do you know better than they do? 
Adam stands for mankind. After all, the Hebrew word Adam does mean mankind. Um, that's a different question, and one that at least I haven't completely resolved in my own thinking yet. There's still open questions. So that was Tremper Longman. Now, i, I got to tell you, I'm going to go to the first break here in a second. We're not going to have time to come back to BioLogos today. We'll, we'll continue with this tomorrow. Something seriously wrong with this group. Seriously, seriously wrong with this group. And this is just tip of the iceberg. But again, I ask the question, who are you going to believe? Are you going to believe Jesus? Are you going to believe the men who were inspired by the Holy Spirit to write the scriptures? Who are all in agreement? who explain the fact that there is sin, death, and suffering in the world, blame it on the fact that Adam transgressed God's covenant and broke God's command. And as a result of his sin, all of us have become sinners. You see, Jesus' death on the cross doesn't even make sense anymore if you get rid of Adam, because when Paul fleshes out in 1 Corinthians 15 and in other places what's going on at the cross, it's all tied to the fact that in Adam, we've all became sinners. And in Christ, those of us who are in Christ, we are made righteous before God through the shed blood of Christ, who is the second Adam. Yeah, all of that goes out the window as soon as you start monkeying with uh, the text and take away the historical aspects of it. You see, basically, folks, evolution is a boogeyman. Okay, he's a boogeyman. You know, people are afraid of him. People are afraid of the evolution boogeyman because all these scientists are out there saying they believe in, in Darwinian, Darwinian evolution. That They can't all be wrong. Yes, they can. They actually can. And they actually are. When you take the time to stand up to evolution, when you take the time to actually research it, the thing is built on a house of cards. It falls over Easily, easily. It's a boogeyman. And the purpose of the boogeyman, by the way, I think evolution was created by Satan himself. The purpose of this particular boogeyman is to get you to doubt God and his word. And that's exactly what it's all about. And it's to get you to, to doubt that God actually created the heavens and the earth. Okay. Hebrews 11 Verse 1, I read, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it the people of old received their commendation. By faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. By faith Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as being righteous, God commending him by, the, by accepting his gifts. And through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. You see, evolution is designed to make it so that you doubt. Doubt. It's all about creating a, a virus in your mind that gets you to doubt. <gasps> I can't trust the Bible. I can't trust the Word of God. I can't trust that it's telling me the truth because... Well, it presents the story in Genesis of, 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 uh, uh, of man's origins as being created by God. But you got all these smart scientists out there saying that, 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 that evolution is how we got here and that we, that we came from nothing, that some, not something was created by nothing, that there was nothing. And then boom, there was, and then there was something. 
and that we evolved and that we all have a common origin and that origin is a is a is a tiny little muddy tadpole that that was living in the primordial ooze a bazillion years ago you see the all those scientists believe it and i don't i don't want to be running contrary to them because they're smart and i don't want to look stupid yeah that's what's going on here now stick to your guns folks do the research do the research again if you're if you're not sure where to begin reading, may I recommend that you go to piratechristianradio.com, click on the store link, and then in our store we have a section called Contra Evolution. Some great books there that uh, will be will that will provide you with a gr- good apologetic uh, start for refuting uh, evolutionary theory and Darwinian evolution. The thing is a house of cards. It comes down really, really easy. All right, we're up on our first break. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian, or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, Pirate Christian. We'll be right back. We don't need to rethink Christianity. We need to rediscover it. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs> Rex, and if you study with my eight-week program, you will learn a self-beater system that I developed over two seasons of preaching in the Octagon. It's called Rex Quando. I need a volunteer to come up here and show that they trust me. Um, here. Okay, you'll do. Come up here. Bow to your pastor. Bow to your pastor! Okay, now I'm gonna give you one chance. One chance, people. Turn around. Turn around. All right. Now fall back and I'll catch you. Ow. That was pretty good. Now, listen, everybody. The reason why he fell was because he didn't have enough faith. Go sit down. Okay, when I fall, I fall in slow motion every time. Now, in addition to what you just saw, if you study with my eight-week program, you're going to learn these things. First off, in Rex Kwando, we use the buddy system. No more reading the Bible solo. You need somebody watching your back at all times. Second off, you're going to learn to discipline your image. You think I got where I am today because I dress like Peter Pan here? Take a look at what I'm wearing, people. Bible pants. Yeah, you have to be pretty righteous to rock these babies. Do you think anybody wants a roundhouse kick to the face while I'm wearing these bad boys? Forget about it. Last off, my students will learn how to walk on water, heal babies, raise the dead, and be extreme. Now, for only one $300 seat offering, you can sign up right now for my eight-week program here at Guts Church. (laughs) 
Dr. Rod Rosenblatt discussing the church's need for world-class scholarship and the unique way in which the British academic model offered at the Wittenberg Institute can help provide you with a top-level postgraduate theological degree. Christians are dependent on good scholarship in a way that sometimes we forget. Think of Tyndall House in England. Some of those evangelicals were so ruled away from the big table conversation in the Church of England that they had to develop graduate training under particular guys who had a high view of Christ and a high view of Scripture. Over the years, they did marvelous stuff with individual young scholars who came there to be trained. So what's the difference between the European model and the American model? The European is used to saying things like, I studied under so-and-so, and the American, uh, that's pretty foreign. And I'm not here talking about the diploma mills. I'm talking about somebody who is tutored, something like Oxford or at Cambridge, and uh, walked through graduate work. If you would like more information about the Wittenberg Institute's British-styled research master's degree, then visit them on the web at wittenberginstitute.org forward slash PCR or call them at area code 425-533-8659. Keep more of your money in your pocket. Hi, Chris Roseborough here. If you're planning to travel anytime in the near future, then don't pay more for airfare, hotel rooms, or rental cars than you need to. Longtime Pirate Christian Radio featured advertiser Cheap O Air can save you a Tijuana taxi load of money on all of your travel needs. Plus, Cheap O Air has a seasonal promotional code for all of our listeners that will save you an additional $10 off of Cheap O Air's already low prices. Visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, write down the promo code and then click on the banner and then book your travel today. Again, that's piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. All right, we're back. Warning, uh, Christian doctrine and evolution, they don't mix, because evolution's a lie. Yeah, Darwinian evolution, it just ain't true. Need to remind you all, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio to you as well as to the world. You can partner with us financially by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate, the other says join our crew. And uh, when you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute $6.95 to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. Of course, if you'd like to specify the amount that you would like to contribute, you can do so by clicking on the donate button, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and send it to Post Office Box 508 Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. Okay, now it's time for our third installment uh, of um, Scott McKnight's interview with Brian McLaren of the Emergent Church. That means we have to play our... When the moon 
Brian McLaren introduction music. Uh, here is uh, Brian, uh, Scott McKnight at a recent uh, Q conference or Q forum talks asking Brian McLaren a yet another question. This is question three. We've we covered two, and we're going to start three today, hopefully get through it. Uh, but there are a total of three questions. We did not cover question one, number one. I thought it was just, you know, a, what preliminary, if you know what I mean. Anyway, so here is Scott McKnight uh, asking Brian McLaren question numero tres. Uh, Brian, when you wrote the last word and the word after that, the blog world was stirred. Uh, You tantalized your readers with suggestions, but as a work of fiction, it was hard to know what Brian believed. They were tantalized about suggestions of universalism. Hmm. You seem to be coming out as a universalist, a belief that in the end... All will be saved. Okay, listen to his answer. Is this true? It'll take a few minutes. And uh, if it is, what was the what led you yeah. to be a universalist? Well, it would be so much simpler, Scott, if I could just say that I'm a universalist. It would actually be a lot simpler for me. I can say I'm not an exclusivist, which is what I was brought up with. Um, but it's not really honest for me to say that I'm a universalist. For this reason, I can make a kind of silly analogy, but if you and I wanted to leave from here and go on a road trip and we wanted to go on a road trip to Miami and we take a long drive, we get deep into conversation and we look up and we see us, we come to a T in the road and one sign says Seattle and the other sign says Portland. Something tells me if you say, do you want Seattle or Portland? I don't want either. I want Miami. And the fact that I'm having to choose between Seattle and Portland makes me think I took a wrong turn a long time ago. So let me let me push this analogy. He's basically saying the fact that he's being told he has to make a decision whether he's a universalist or an exclusivist tells him that he's made a wrong turn somewhere. How could you read the Bible and what Jesus taught, especially in light of the the uh, the sheep and the goat judgment? And basically say universalism versus exclusivism is basically a false dichotomy and shows that you've taken a wrong turn. And in my opinion, when I'm asked to choose between exclusivism and universalism, I'm so far off the path that I think is actually the storyline of the Bible that it just doesn't it doesn't make sense to me. And I know for some people that sounds crazy. That sounds evasive. But I'm actually trying to be honest. Now, by the way, what's ticking under the hood there? He has been heavily influenced by Jürgen Moltmann's so-called theology of hope, which is kind of a, um, well, it's the emergent uh, eschatology. It's this idea, listen, no, 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 no. 
uh, we got to look at God's ever expanding concentric circles of inclusiveness. You got to you got to understand the Bible correctly here. It's not that Jesus is going to return in glory to judge both the living and the dead and send some people to hell and other people will, will join him in everlasting life. No, no, no. That's <sighs> that's just a terrible way to think. That's a terrible choice to have to make. That that leaves some people out. No, 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 no. We believe in God's ever-expanding concentric circles of inclusiveness, and we believe in the eschatology of hope. And that is, is that at some point we're going to help God realize His dream for the world. And what's going to happen is that, uh, well, the entropy is going to stop, and we're going to go backwards. Uh, at and and at, and Eden is going to be restored to the planet. You see, that's it's a completely different way of looking at things altogether isn't supported by the Bible, but that's, you know, yeah, so this idea of exclusivism versus inclusive, ah, that's, that just shows you're on the wrong path, according to McLaren. I don't think the primary question being asked by the, by the Bible is the question, who goes to heaven and who goes to hell? I think the primary question... Uh, so what? It's one of the issues answered in the Bible, whether it's the primary question or the secondary question or the tertiary question or the quadra whatever question. Um, it, that doesn't matter. Okay? Eternal life versus eternal damnation is one of the issues clearly touched on in scriptures. And it, it's most clear, most clear in the New Testament. Eternal life for those who, through the preaching of the gospel, repent and trust in Christ alone for the forgiveness of their sins and those who refuse to repent persist in their in their repent in their unrepentant sinful condition and refuse to believe and trust in Christ they remain under the wrath of God and when Christ returns he's going to separate humanity as a shepherd shep separates the sheep and the goats this is all very basic stuff if you just read Jesus' stuff in context and go, I wonder if he meant what he said. Hmm, seems to be that he did. We continue. Oh, I think the primary question being asked is, how can God's will be done on earth as it is in heaven? I think the primary question is, how can this creation that has been damaged by human sin, injustice, oppression, evil, lust, greed, the whole shebang... How can this creation be healed, and how can we participate with God in the healing of creation? Completely different eschatological view. Uh, it's not that Christ is going to return in glory to judge the living. No, 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 no. How can we participate with God to heal the planet that's been scarred by sin and injustice and poverty and eco-terrorism? Whether it's Haiti or Wall Street or... or the Pentagon or whatever else. Well, I mean, do you, do you think there's an afterlife? Uh, I do think there's an afterlife. And we'll all experience the felicity of the afterlife. Here's what I think. In the, first of all, in the Bible, I think salvation is by grace and everybody gets judged by works. What does salvation mean? Salvation from what? The term salvation doesn't have any meaning unless it's connected properly and plugged back into uh, the biblical concept of the wrath of God against sin. Oh, boy. Salvation's by grace and everyone will be judged by works. Okay, that's kind of sort of right-ish. We continue. Between 
So I think the mercy of God comes to all and the judgment of God comes to all. Um, so the mercy of God comes to all and the judgment of God comes to all. <clears throat> the mercy of God comes to all. That's <clears throat> universalism. But the universalism that I think is far more important in the Bible is not the question, what happens to everybody after they die? I think it's the question, does everybody learn to see the image of God in other human beings, or do they continue to divide the world between us and them? And us is always... Okay, which of the apostles taught this? Where is this in the apostolic teaching clearly laid out? This is a completely foreign uh, reading of Scripture. Is the one God loves, and them is always the one that are somehow other. And, and my concern is that by making the, the, the issue, the big issue in the mind of Christians, who's the inside us and who's the outside them, by doing that... By the way, this is a straw man. That's not what the big issue is in Christianity. Who's the inside us and who's the outside them? No, it's all about going and proclaiming the good news. The good news, Christ died on the cross for all of our sins. He calls us to repent of our wickedness and to trust in him for the forgiveness of sins. The primary issue is not who's in and who's out. The primary issue is getting the gospel out and letting God do that, sort out who's in and who's out. We violate a more important ethical universalism of seeing the image of God in every person. Now, I know but a lot wait, of people... But wait, but let, let me say this. Okay, I, I get... I believe in the importance, and Jesus clearly believes, in the importance of life now. Yeah. But let's just add the numbers up. Let's say you and I are, are, are... God is gracious enough to us that we live to 90. Yeah. And there's an eternity afterwards. That's a lot more than 90. Yeah. So it's not that it's one or the other. Yeah. It's both. That's true, Scott. But if you frame the biblical question, I agree with you. If you this. frame the biblical question, we agree that way, on this. <laughs> except for one thing, because you are still working in a narrative that's different from the one I'm trying to work in. I grew up in your narrative. I know your narrative. I've been trying to explore a different way of understanding the biblical narrative. Yeah, the, the, a new way of exploring the narrative that uh, jives with. Black liberation theology, uh, feminist theology, all of the basic – the liberals who deny uh, the authority of Scripture, deny the Scripture, who want to toy with its meaning and to twist it into something else. He, yeah, that's what he's exploring. And I think it's very hard because it, it's taken me many, many years to somehow deconstruct some of this in my own brain to try to find some other space. I'm very sympathetic with how hard it is for you to understand that when you step into another paradigm, some of those questions don't make sense. And if I try to answer those questions, I'm going back into your paradigm. Uh, and uh, you mean the historic Christian faith, what Christianity has taught from the beginning, what the apostles taught, what their disciples believed. Which yeah, is, okay, but here's what I would say. I, I know what you're saying. I like this idea of paradigm shift. I'm, I'm big on this. And I've gone through paradigm shifts in my life. But um, you get into that paradigm and then tickle people on this side with the old questions of salvation. Because even in those chapters, those issues come up, which means that paradigm is still at work. Yeah, the reason why they come up is because the Bible brings them up. 
very clearly, not vaguely. Yeah. You know what I mean? If I were more effective, if I had some skill that I don't have, maybe I could help people transport over to the other. It's one of the reasons I keep writing. <laughs> um, because I, it is, it's not easy. But just, uh, just for example, you just use the word salvation. And for so many people, as soon as they hear the word salvation, they have a whole set of definitions in their mind. I, I, I was a pre- You mean the biblical definitions? What the Bible teaches about it? Preacher for 24 years. I really read the Bible. I still do. And, um, uh, and what I was always troubled by is when I read the word salvation in the Bible, I would import a set of assumptions about what that word meant. And they- uh, no, 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 stop. You, you would import a set of assumptions about what that word meant. The question is, what does the Bible teach that it means? And then if what your mind automatically goes to when you hear the word salvation and you define it a particular way, is that definition consistent with what Scripture says? But see, he says, well, salvation's by grace and we're all judged by works. And the, the love of God, the grace of God comes to all. Didn't fit what I saw in the text. Okay, I'm so you. when I read the text, the word salvation starts in the Old Testament, and it means liberation. Salvation is what God does for the Jewish people, getting them out of slavery. It's not about getting them out of hell in the Old Testament. I agree. It's getting them out of Egypt. So I'm trying to be honest. Uh, yeah, and that points us to the ultimate of application that affects us all. Because all of us are dead in trespasses and sin and sold as slaves to sin. Scripture says that. So the question is, when it comes to salvation, what does that mean? Salvation, and that means freedom for, you know, freedom and forgiveness from the wrath of God against our sinful condition. <sighs> Scripture teaches this so clearly. Yet he wants to deny it because, well, that might get you to think that some are in and some are out. And that just doesn't, you've got to learn how to see God in the other. These are all liberal categories. These are not historic categories of Christian orthodoxy at all. And they're not taught in the scriptures. Honest about those things. Um, and that's why there's a lot for us to talk about and our time's up. <laughs> all right. We're up on our second break. There you have it. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkbackatfightingforthefaith.com. Or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, Pirate Christian. We'll be right back. Sissioprified religiosity won't save you. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. This is the air I breathe. This is the air I breathe. I've had enough. Of this sissy, frenzy, turning for the written music you have the audacity to call worship. Men, put this entire girly praise band in the boo box. Let's wheel in the organ and get some real worship music underway. Oh, 
Ye be listening to Pirate Christian Radio. Keep more of your money in your pocket. Hi, Chris Roseborough here. If you're planning to travel anytime in the near future, then don't pay more for airfare, hotel rooms, or rental cars than you need to. Longtime Pirate Christian Radio featured advertiser Cheap O Air can save you a Tijuana taxi load of money on all of your travel needs. Plus, Cheap O Air has a seasonal promotional code for all of our listeners that will save you an additional $10 off of Cheap O Air's already low prices. Visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, write down the promo code, and then click on the banner, and then book your travel today. Again, that's piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. All right, we're back. Hour number two of Fighting for the Faith, sermon review time. Cue up the music and dive right in. The good, the bad, and the ugly. We review it all here at Fighting for the Faith. We're an equal opportunity sermon reviewing service. Today's uh, uh, sermon comes to us via LCBC in Mannheim, Pennsylvania. Pastor Mike Album uh, presiding... Was it Alvin? Yeah, it's Pastor Mike. <laughs> the name of the sermon is Mad Men, the Impulsive. The reason I picked this one is because there's there be a shifting going on regarding what the Bible teaches regarding grace. See if you can detect it. See if this is proper uh, exegesis uh, as it pertains to... Uh, Understanding the Apostle Peter and what it is that he did in his life. Yeah. Let me kill the music. I just want to get right to it. So without any further ado, here is um, Mad Men the Impulsive. Well, today, today I really just want you to consider one question, and it's kind of a midsummer. And for those of you who don't think it's midsummer, it's the summer's not over. If you're one of those August and the summer's over people, stay away. <laughs> summer's not over. I'm still kind of in my hammock kind of mindset, and and uh, I don't want to give you too much to think about this morning, though, because because this is a time when life just kind of slows down and. And we relax, but I do want to give you something to think about when you're lounging in your hammock or, or maybe for some of you, it's when you have your fishing pole in your hand or you're baking in the sun. Um, we had one of those nights a couple of weeks ago. Remember we had a just real bad storm come through on Sunday and it created all kinds of a mess for a lot of us. And, and yet it knocked the temperature way down too. And so Tuesday evening, it was still in the, in the seventies and I'm laying out in my hammock and reading yet another golf book, and um, 
and just laying back thinking, man, this is the life. And so what the question I'd love for you to let rumble around in your head at, at one of those times at some point is, this, are you the person that you want to be? Okay, now, <clears throat> where we are at the sermon at this point, this is the uh, pitching the problem point of the sermon. What's the problem being presented here? And, and it comes in the form of kind of one of those self-reflective questions. What's the question? Am I the person I want to be? Hmm. Okay. And, and I don't mean, do you like your job or have you reached the station in life where, where you want to be or are you happy with your house or your car or, or whatever? I mean, um, are you who you want to be? Because isn't it true that the size of our house or the car we drive doesn't have a whole lot to do with the type of person that we are, kind of who we are at our core? I mean, we, we could all think of jobs that we wouldn't want to have. I mean, think about this guy. that um, In his hammock moments, do you think he really wants to be the scapegoat for the world? And he gets get, gets the blame for uh, for any game that goes bad or one thing or another. And, and, and think about it. He gets international travel and gets to interact with all kinds of interesting people in all kinds of interesting places. And yet, and yet he also gets sworn at in like 40 different languages. And he just has to be asking, is this who I want to be? And, or this guy, um, in his hammock moments, he just has to be thinking, really, do I? Yeah, some of you know who he is because he gets world travel and, and interacts with all kinds of interesting people and, and, and goes wherever he wants to. Salary last year was $4.8 million along with all kinds of stock options and, and other bonuses, houses, cars, corporate jets, and, and all kinds of fun stuff. He's got a, they tell us he's got a three-quarter million dollar boat that he named Bob. And I'm sorry to all you Bobs, but... Now, if you don't know who he's talking about, I think he's talking about the president of BP or the former president and CEO of BP. Um, to name your boat Bob? Uh, yeah, anyway. Um, and, uh, and yet, uh, t- uh, Tony Hayward's become the face of the BP oil disaster in the Gulf. And, um, and he, he, you just have to think, when he's in his hammock moments... Um, is he asking himself, man, uh, well, in fact, we know what he's asking himself uh, because a couple of weeks ago he made the mistake of telling us and it became world headlines uh, all over the world. The headlines were, I just want my life back. And the people of the Gulf said, well, yeah, us too. And, uh, and he got sworn at in only one language, I think, that week. But, uh, and, and you know what? Tony got his life back um, because he's no longer the CEO of BP, I think, in part because of that comment. And I, I, if I read it right, they sent him to Siberia. Um, and our buddy Bernie, Bernie never has to cook again for himself. This is Bernie Madoff. So, again, the, the question that, that he's pitching is the problem are you the person you want to be? And he's, you know, showing people who are who obviously have experienced some kind of success in life, but um, may not be the people they want to be, because that apparently is the burning uh, problem that Christian Christianity is all about solving, or that Christ died on the cross for. Not sure, but let's continue. And Bernie has his own has his wardrobe selected for him and his schedule laid out for him. He's got people to do all that for him. Uh, he's a celebrity on his block, um, on his cell block. 
uh, because Bernard Lawrence Madoff is prisoner 61727-054 at the Federal Corrections Facility in Butner, California, or, uh, North Carolina, and we all know him as the perpetrator of the largest Ponzi scheme in U.S. history. And, and you just have to wonder, when he sits alone in his jail cell, um, does, does Bernie find himself thinking and asking himself, was it really worth it? Okay, got to stop. Okay. Here's the deal. When a pastor correctly preaches sin, preaches biblical the biblical concept of sin, that we all transgress God's law, it doesn't end up basically creating an, an idea where, well, I'm glad I'm not Bernie Madoff. I'm glad I'm not the president of BP Oil. Yeah, no. Um, instead, it makes me go, uh, oh, boy, am I in trouble. Because I have transgressed God's law. I deserve hell. I'm not hearing that here. I, I kind of, in almost this is like, well, <laughs> I know, you, you know, you're not exact, you're not as bad as these guys. I mean, I mean, are they the people they want to be? Well, apparently not. I mean, I mean, look at their lives now. I mean, one got fired from BP. The other guy, he's in prison. Huh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I don't, I'm not hearing a correct biblical preaching on sin at this point. I, you just got to wonder if he doesn't think, I didn't want to be this guy. I, I don't want to be this guy. This morning we meet um, uh, and, and are going to look at the life of a man who was one of Jesus' closest followers. And, and we find Peter in a jail cell too. And it wasn't a new experience for him though. He'd seen the inside of many jails. And somehow uh, he had a feeling that this might be the last one. Peter had been sentenced to die, and, and that wasn't a new thing either. People had been trying to kill him for years, but this time it was Caesar's jail and Caesar's uh, death sentence and Caesar's executioner, and, and it seems like it, it, it might be going to happen this time. And You just have to think that anyone in that position would be asking themselves the question, how, how did I get here? Okay, you're going to stop. I want to point something out here. Um, he's not preaching from a biblical text. He's preaching church history at this point kind of fast-forwarding to what we've been able to piece together from the writings of the Church Fathers about Peter's life and how it came to an end. So we pick up, basically, after all of the biblical texts have been written, or at least Peter's biblical texts have been written, and we find Peter now in jail, awaiting execution uh, by Caesar's orders. This would be uh, Nero. Okay, um... Yeah, could we get to the Bible, please? Is this really the person that I, that I want to be? And yeah, okay, we have, how do you know that Peter even asked these questions? I mean, you're just imagining at this point. You're not supposed to imagine. You're supposed to preach a biblical text. You know, that's at least how Peter put it, you know, now that I'm thinking about it. Hang on a second here. Um, let's see. I, I'm going to look for a particular, uh, i got to find this in the writings of Peter, Let's see here. I want this in the New Testament. I'm looking for a particular word. Yeah, here we go. Um, 1 Peter chapter 4. 1 Peter chapter 4. Okay. Let me, let me read this for you, starting at verse 1. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever, whoever has suffered in the flesh 
has ceased from sin so as to live the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you, but they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead, that though that though judged in the flesh the way the people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled, sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, uh, earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling, for as each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks the oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, uh, in order that everything uh, that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. So we're, we, we're to do all these things and speak as if we're speaking the very oracles of God when we're preaching the word. Why? For the glory of God in Christ. And that's Peter. Okay, so I uh, just want to point out here that uh, this pastor at LCBC, he's not preaching a biblical text at this point. You know, we're, we kind of fast forwarded through all the Bible and now we're at the end of Peter's life. And he's imagining what Peter must have been saying. I, I wonder if I was the man that I should have been. Hmm, I just don't, my imagination doesn't agree with your imagination there, Pastor Mike. And, and I'm going to tell you um, that, uh, that I think Peter would answer that question with a quick and resounding yes. I love who I am. I love who I am, and I don't care where it has taken me um, because I, I, I love who I am. And, but it was so your imagination tells you that at the end of his life, Peter asked the question of himself, am, am, I, am, am I the man I wanted to be? And you are absolutely convinced in your imagination, did I mention your imagination or your imagination, that in your imagination that Peter would have said, I'm absolutely, I like the way, I love who I am. Yeah, I love who I, I just, yeah. Hmm. Um, is it any wonder why you're not using a biblical text to preach this sermon? Because I can't think of a single biblical te text that even touches on any of this stuff. Where you're preaching your imagination at this point, Pastor Mike. It wasn't always that way. And we'll come back to Peter in, a jail, in the jail cell in a couple of minutes. But let's get to, get, get to know him a little bit more. Um, uh, Peter, we actually know more about Peter than any of the other uh, of the 12 disciples. Peter, Peter's a major player in the first four books of the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And he, uh, uh, he also is a major player in the early part of the book of Acts. And that's that season of time when the church was being founded. And, and he's one of the key players in that. And then we also have two letters that were written by Peter. And, and we think they probably were written 30 to 40 years after that time. And so we get to know him kind of along the way. And we get to know him when he's first meeting Jesus and, and what he's like then. And then we get to know him during that time when he's kind of the, the foundation of the church and, and getting things started. And, and then we also get to know him later in life when, uh, when we get to kind of see how he's progressed through all that time or whether he's progressed at all and see him in more mature. And we get to kind of see him evolve and see how he grows along the way. And 
Um, I, I love stained glass windows, and I, and I love the, the stories that they commemorate. And, uh, and yet sometimes I wonder if they're not kind of dangerous for us too um, because they kind of foster this sense that these aren't real people, that they're more like storybook people, and uh, they're, they're just, it's just a story that happened. But this is all true. Uh, it, it all really happened. These aren't cartoon characters we're talking about and, and fictional mythological characters. The guy we're getting to know this morning, he's a regular guy. Just like you and me. And um, Peter was a simple guy. He, he's introduced to us as a fisherman. And uh, historians tell us that in Peter's day, every Israeli boy went to rabbinical school to learn the Bible. And it was every Jewish mom's dream that their, that their son would get recognized by a rabbi and that he'd see his potential and kind of draw him into a fold, into his fold and craft a scholar out of him. And, and much like there's many parents dream that, uh, that their son or their daughter gets recognized by a coach and gets drawn into kind of their fold and and that um, that this coach will help them get that division one scholarship and and become a professional athlete and and yet peter wasn't a scholar uh, we know that the kids that um, that didn't make the cut in rabbinical school were sent home to learn a trade or to work in the family business and that's where we find peter when we first meet him uh, he's fishing and, and there was a fair amount of elitism around this practice. And we can see that at one point as in, in Acts, in the chapter 4, as the li- religious leaders are trying to figure out how to describe this group of followers that Jesus has. They use a word that, that we derive another word from. Maybe you recognize the word they use to describe them. Yeah, that's a familiar word, eh? And, that, and, and so you might see why there was a fair amount of tension between religious, the religious leaders and people, just everyday people like, like us. And um, Peter had his faults, too. He was a real flesh and blood guy that struggled just like you and me struggle. And it's interesting to me that the Bible doesn't cover up his faults. And um, in fact, as you get to know Peter, you might find a lot of yourself in Peter. Because isn't it true, isn't that proverb true that often our greatest weaknesses, if we can harness them and shape them and, and kind of chip away at the rough edges, they can become our greatest strengths? What? Where in the Bible does it say that our weaknesses can become our greatest strengths if we chip away at them? Can can we get into an actual biblical text? Can you really actually teach us what the Bible says? You know, read a passage and then, you know, let God's word speak here. We're, apparently we're doing some kind of character study on Peter. And at this point, your points are dubious. And, uh, and think about Thomas. Thomas was valuable to the team because he could take a problem and he and ask questions about it and, and, and look at it from every facet and, and from every... Thomas was valuable to the team because he can ask questions. Huh? Where does Scripture say that? Every direction, and 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 James, if he was a if he was from a business background, was able to think in organizational structure and systems, and so he wasn't afraid. So he was basically. Uh, uh... A systems guy for a major corporation before coming onto the Jesus team. Afraid of growth and, and could think about how to manage it. And 
Peter was just a real flesh and blood guy like you and me, and he had the junk that you guys, that, that we all struggle with. And, 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 but, but Jesus saw something in Peter. And he saw... You mean sin. He's Peter, Jesus saw him as a sinner in need of a Savior, right? Kind of the sculpture beneath the stone, as Rodan described it. And um, Jesus saw his potential. Now, what Jesus didn't know was whether Peter would allow him to chip off the rough edges. And um, can I suggest to you that the, the unknown... Where does the scripture say this? Where does the scripture say that Jesus saw the potential in Peter, but didn't know if Peter would allow him to chip off the rough edges? Where on where in the scripture is any of this taught? The answer is nowhere. Does that bother you? It should. Pastors aren't supposed to preach things that are nowhere in the Bible. Make points that apparently the Bible doesn't make. As if the and put on the illusion that we're somehow talking about Jesus. Nowhere in the scriptures does it say Jesus saw a lot of potential in Peter, and uh, but didn't know if 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 Peter would let him chip away at those things. I mean, the way he's preaching this, it sounds like Peter's in the driver's seat. You know, Peter's really the divine one getting to call the shots, and Jesus would never, never impugn or impinge on uh, Peter's sovereignty. The question mark about about me and, and about you is not, do we have great potential? Um, the question is, will we allow Jesus to chip away at, at our rough edges? See, the person that you want to be is in there. The unknown is... is... Really, the Bible teaches that the person I want to be is inside of me. Jesus says, out of the heart all comes, comes all kinds of vile sin and wickedness and filth. Murder, adultery, theft, you know, something like that. That comes out of the heart. That's inside of me. Where does the Bible talk about all this great potential that's within us? Whether that you'll let Jesus chip away at the rock to expose it. Peter had several tendencies that, that would make him hard to be around. Tendencies that kept him from being the person that, that he was going to need to be if, uh, if he was going to be useful. And he, he had a tendency to be impulsive. And he was, the, he was generally the first to act. And he would think later. And he also could, uh, could fill the awkward silence that, that sometimes comes with conversation. And a lot of times fill it with with uh, things that weren't quite appropriate. And, um, and Peter could also be the, the guy that was quick to make commitments but slow to count the cost. And so I want to just real quickly take a, couple, a look at a couple of those uh, examples. And so uh, turn to Matthew chapter 14 with me, if you would, in your Bibles. There are some there in your seats. If, if you didn't have one with you, you can see the page number for our Bibles up there on the screen. And we could look at several examples of Peter when he acted first and then thought later. But this one's a great example because imagine yourself in his shoes. <clears throat> Peter's a, a fisherman, so he's been out on the lake before. He's been out in storms before. But this, was a, this storm was somehow different. This one had even him scared, a, a, an experienced fisherman. And, and so they're, 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 they're thinking they might not make it through this terrible storm. And, and all of a sudden they look out over the water and they see Jesus. And just imagine how bizarre that must have felt because that, that doesn't happen every day. And, and it's, it's a true story. 
Um, but that doesn't happen every day. And, and, and the Peter's first thought is, well, if that's you, Jesus, let me come out with you. And Jesus says, well, come on out. And so Peter steps out of the boat and, um, and he goes out there with him and it works for a couple of minutes. But Peter's remember, Peter's the guy who acts first and kind of thinks later and, Peter also had a tendency to fill the awkward silence. Uh, and so uh, turn to Matthew chapter 17, just a couple pages over, I think. And uh, some people would call Peter the disciple. What was the point again of uh, talking about Peter walking on the water? You know, you kind of missed the punchline there. Disciple with the foot-shaped mouth. Now, that feels just a little bit harsh, but Peter does have a tendency to fill the awkward silence, usually with the first thing that comes to mind. And so in this story in Matthew 17, Jesus has woken up three of his closest followers, and it's in the middle of the night, and he takes them off onto the top of a mountain, and on the top of the mountain, these two guys appear out of nowhere. And and, uh, these three guys instinctively know that that it's Moses and Elijah standing there talking to Jesus. And and you place yourself in that moment. I mean, imagine how just awestruck you would be in that moment. And and what's Peter's first thought? You could see it there on the paper. Hey, we ought to build a roof over you guys. You guys need a roof? And, and it's like, you just have to think. These are, now, these are probably high school age guys, maybe maybe early 20s. And, and you just have to think James and John, are they go from that like that awestruck moment to... Dude, shut up sometimes, you know? What are you, what are you saying? And So that's your takeaway from Jesus' miraculous transformation, the amount of transfiguration. That Why are you telling the story of the transfiguration as if it's about Peter? You're missing Christ. And I don't see the disciples going, oh, shut up, Peter. I can't believe you just like, like totally said that. Like, for sure, dude. Duh. I, I, I don't see that in Matthew 17. Can you show me which translation you're using to come up with that? And, and yet what's even more amazing about these stories is um, that Peter probably helped write all of them. I mean, Peter would have known Matthew and Mark and, and Luke and John, and they probably talked together as they remembered their, their experiences with Jesus. And so, so Peter's, a, Peter's telling or thinking through the stories, too, and you just have to. Yeah, again, that was kind of a key thing you said there. You know, he was probably aware of the other gospel writers writing their gospels, and what were they writing about? Jesus! Why aren't you telling me about Jesus? Because Peter was all about pointing us to Jesus and what Jesus said and taught and did and his death on the cross for our sins and faith and trust in him. Uh, Peter's message was about Jesus. Peter was a a witness to the life, death, and resurrection of Christ. And that's what he did. After Jesus' resurrection and Jesus restoring Peter, you remember the whole incident about, Peter, do you love me? You, You know I love you, Lord. Feed my sheep. What do you think Peter fed Jesus' sheep with? Stories about himself? No, he fed Jesus' sheep with the words of the great shepherd. This entire sermon is a complete distraction away from Jesus. 
Not only that, it doesn't teach us anything. The Bible actually tells us. To think that Matthew is like, man, I, I'm sorry, but I have to write all this. But it's like part of the story. You know, I, I have to tell the story. And, and, and I'm sure Peter's like, yeah, yeah, what, whatever, just do it. And, and, but think about how that must have been for somebody like Peter. To have to relive some of the dumbest things that he'd ever done over and over and over again. And, I mean, picture in your mind. Why are we psychologizing Peter? None of this is in the biblical text. Instead of imagining what it must have been like for poor Peter. Oh, yeah, because, you know, the kind of guy he is, he likes to, you know, he acts rashly. He speaks quickly and doesn't think. Oh, can you imagine the pain and suffering that he went through? The Bible doesn't teach any of this stuff. Get to the text. Tell me about Jesus. That's what Peter would have done. Uh, that, that thing you did um, that, that you hope nobody ever hears about and nobody ever learns about. Um, dumbest thing you ever did. And for Peter, those got written down in a book and were repeated over and over and over again through the whole span of his lifetime. Uh, not to mention for thousands and thousands and thousands of years and the story from the Gospels that Peter is most known for uh, is told in uh, three of the four Gospels in its gory detail, and it's the story of his betrayal of Jesus. Now turn over just a few more chapters to Matthew chapter 26, and uh, we'll start reading in verse 31. And long before this series of events, Peter was already known for, for being quick to commit and not always counting the cost. But, but this time, he went toe-to-toe with Jesus, and he swore up and down with Jesus that, uh, that, that Jesus was wrong. And, and so the context is they're, they're leaving the upper room and going over to the, uh, the Mount of Olives, not a very long walk at all. And on the way, Jesus told them, Tonight, all of you will desert me. Uh, for the scriptures say, God will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I've been raised from the dead, I will go ahead of you to Galilee and meet you there. And Peter in his way declared, if every, even if everyone else deserts you, I'll never desert you. And Jesus replied, I tell you the truth, Peter, this very night before the rooster crows, you'll deny three times that you even know me. No, Peter insisted, even if I have to die with you, I'll never deny you. And all the other disciples vowed the same. And in fact, Peter was wrong. Three of the Gospels record his declaration. Two other ones give us just kind of a, a, a blow by excruciating blow account of, of how it all happened. Peter failed. Peter denied Jesus. And when push came to shove, he, he bailed out and so how, how do we justify that version of Peter uh, with the one that we met earlier who's in a jail cell and willing to die for this cause that he's given himself to and over 40 years later? And Could it be that he was an eyewitness to the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ? Could it be that he's an eyewitness to Jesus' victorious conquering of the grave and that he knew then that Jesus was not only the Messiah promised in the Old Testament, but that Jesus was God, the one true God in human flesh. And as a eyewitness to that, he, he was commissioned by Christ to go and to tell the world about repentance and the forgiveness of sins in Jesus' name. I mean, I'm, maybe I'm just off here. I mean, but that seems to me to be the biblical answer.
And it makes a lot of sense. How does he go from being the one, you know, one way to the other? Answer, Jesus. Something has happened to Peter along the way. What, what would cause someone like Peter, he's just a regular guy like you and me, what would cause him to be willing to go to his death for this cause? Well, I think we find the answer to that in some of his later writings in life. And so turn to First Peter with me, uh, if you would, um, because it gives us a little bit more information about who Peter was later in life as he kind of bears his heart to the people that he's writing to. Remember, we've got more information about Peter than, than almost any of the other disciples. And, and so let's look and see here if, if First Peter, we'll, we'll start reading in verse 12 of chapter 5 and just kind of see where he's at now. He says, I, I wrote this book, this letter to you uh, and delivered it through Silas. And, and look right there in the middle of the verse. My purpose in writing it is to encourage and assure you, assure you that, that what you're experiencing is truly a part of God's grace for you. All that you're going through is truly a part of God's grace for you. Stand firm in this grace, Peter says. And the whole, the whole letter that Peter writes to them is about grace. And so what happened to Peter? Well, grace happened to Peter. Peter not only learned to receive grace, but he learned to give it. And in this, in this letter, he's talking to a group of people that are going through a terrible time. If you read the entire letter, that you'll see that they're being tempted by the sin and the junk of their past lives, and not unlike some of us. And, and they're being insulted and ridiculed by the people that they used to hang out with and the people that they used to party with, not unlike some of us. And they're being, they're being insulted by, for trusting Jesus. And they're being marginalized by the local authorities and generally just kind of persecuted because they won't go along with the religious flow. And Peter's response to all that, his response from his whole, from, from his experience, from, I think he's summing up, in fact, his whole life here, uh, not just a letter to them, but a life he's summing up when he says, man, I wrote you out of my own experience, to encourage and assure you that these experiences that you're having is truly a part of God's grace for you. What is he reading from? I, 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 oh, man. Hang on a second. Okay, he said he was preaching, uh, this is from 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 12. Uh, hang on a second here. I, I need to expand out the context here. This is ridiculous. I, I don't know where he's getting any of the stuff he's just preaching about. Let's see here. Um, verse, so verse 8, First Peter chapter 5, starting at verse 8. It says, Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of sufferings are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after we have suffered a little while, the God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be dominion forever and ever. Amen. By Silvanus, a faithful brother, as I regard him, I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. Um... I, yeah, I'm not seeing any of this stuff in First Peter 5 where he's burying his heart and saying that, that talking about the thing that you're experiencing. You know, what a, this is just an abomination. Stand firm in this grace. 
But what happened to Peter is somehow he was able to begin to see the experiences that he'd had, all those kind of mistakes that he'd made that were recorded forever in history. He's learned how to see all of those experiences, not just as mistakes that he wants to hide from everyone, but he calls them grace. What? Peter does not call his experiences grace. Are you getting this from the message paraphrase? Hang on a second here. I got to go on the internet. Don't own a copy of the message paraphrase. Uh, one Peter. Hang on a second here. One Peter five uh, message. I uh, just hate his, hitting this button here. Okay, I'm sending this uh, this brief letter to you, Sylvanus, most dependable brother. I have the highest regard for him. I've written as urgently and as accurately as I know this is God's generous truth. Embrace it with both arms. No, he ain't getting this from the message. Where is he getting this from? I, I mean, seriously. It, it, this ain't even in the text. That his mistakes and that all he sees that as all grace and the experiences that he's had. That's grace. No, it's not. You're not preaching the Bible correctly, sir. The Bible doesn't say any of this ridiculous stuff. And so if you're anything like me, uh, you're thinking, well, what what is grace then? And if if grace is, uh... oh, you know, God's unmerited favor and kindness to sinners who don't deserve even to breathe the air that God created because it's his air. Uh, is um, experiencing persecution uh, like these people are, then um, if that's God's grace for me, I'm not sure I want God's grace. And so rather than define it, I'd rather show it to you in action. And so keep your finger there in First Peter. You, you, you're going to show us grace in action. How about by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of your own doing, it's the gift of God. Is that where you're going to go next, sir? But turn back to Matthew chapter 14, and let's see how the rest of that story plays out with Peter out on the water, getting out of the boat and, and, and out on the water. I'm going to start reading in, uh, in verse 27. And you'll remember that, so Peter gets out of the boat. They see Jesus walking out over the water, um, and Jesus spoke to them, and he said, Don't be afraid. Take courage. I'm here. And then Peter called to him, and he said, Lord, if it's really you... You tell me to come to you walking out on the water. And Jesus said, well, yeah, come on. And so Peter went over the side of the boat and he walked on the water toward Jesus. But when he saw the strong wind and the waves, he was terrified and he began to sink. Save me, Lord, he shouted. And Jesus immediately, don't, don't miss this. Jesus immediately reached out his hand. And, and grabbed him. And, and man, we, when Peter jumped out of the boat, we don't know what his friends were thinking. But from what we know of Thomas, he's probably thinking, man, you idiot, what are you doing now? What are you thinking? And, and James, James has probably already moved into Peter's seat on the boat. And this is just, this isn't even eisegesis. This is just imagination. He's just making stuff up and preaching it like it's the Bible. But, but what does Jesus do? Jesus does none of that. Jesus reached out a hand. What he didn't do was say, guess you're not going to work out the way I thought you were. He doesn't, doesn't kind of say, well, man, you're an idiot, just like everybody said you were. No, he reaches out his hand and, and, and 
And that's what grace looks like, I think Peter would say. Grace. Uh, <clears throat> Let's read that. Jesus actually did say something. Can we read what he said and see what that means? Okay. First, uh, Matthew chapter 14, I'll start at verse 28. Peter answered him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. He said, come. So Peter got out of the boat, walked on the water, and came to Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid. And beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him, saying to him, O you of little faith, why did you doubt? Why did you doubt? So Jesus did say something, but I don't think it fit into the sermon that uh, Pastor Mike here is trying to weave together. It would it would be too difficult to explain that because he's trying to paint a completely non-historical picture of Jesus um, and Peter, too. Um, yeah, Jesus asked him the question, why did you doubt, O you of little faith? Yeah, see, the reason why Peter was sinking is because he lost faith there. He kept his, got his eyes off of Christ. This will play into the later part of the sermon. We continue. Grace reaches out a hand when we fall. Grace reaches out a hand when the waves of life overtake us. And don't miss this. Even when our own dumbness catches up with us, uh, grace reaches out a hand. And I read that and I just have to ask myself, when was the last time I reached out a hand? Yeah, grace definitely does reach out a hand. It's the hands of Jesus being spread apart on the cross, them being reached across uh, the uh, the cross beam of of Jesus's cross and being nailed to the cross. Yeah, Jesus reaches out a hand, all right, and he has his hands and feet pierced through, and blood shed for you. That's grace to help someone, and not just someone that's down on their luck, but someone who's done something really stupid. I mean, like the like the guy who races along in the right-hand lane uh, on the highway, all up, all the way up along a string of people that are lined up on the left-hand side, and then he gets stuck up there, and grace lets him in. Uh, like the like the gal that seems like she's always late to meetings, and she's late again, and, and grace picks her, brings her up to speed on on what she's missed, because uh, grace reaches out a hand. And sometimes, sometimes grace says nothing at all, uh, even when there's plenty that could be said. We look a few chapters over again in Matthew chapter 17. And uh, when, when Peter wanted to build a roof, remember, uh, we're told Jesus didn't say anything. He didn't tell Peter how, I mean, I think we already, Peter knew how dumb it was that he said that as soon as it came out of his mouth. But, but P, Jesus didn't feel like he needed to tell him. He knew he didn't need to tell him. And, and I think Peter would say in that moment, man, that was grace. I think Peter would have said in that moment, man, that was grace. Well, if that's what Peter would have said, wouldn't he have documented that for us? Don't you think he would have written it down in one of his epistles? You think we'd find it in the Bible somewhere? You're not called to preach your opinions, sir. You're not called to preach your subjective ideas about what you think may or may not have happened. By the way, there's more to the story. Uh, Flip over to Matthew 17 if you're there. Uh, this is Jesus' transfiguration. I begin at verse 1, Matthew 17, verse 1. There's more to this. L- listen. After six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John, his brother, and led them up a high mountain by themselves, and he was transfigured before them. 
and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good that we are here. If you wish, we will make three tents here, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He was still speaking when, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces, and they were terrified. Jesus came and touched them, saying, Rise, have no fear. And when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. Hmm. Yeah, the story, when you actually read it in the Bible, is very compelling. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. That's what God the Father told Peter, James, and John to do. So when Peter preaches, he preaches Christ so that other people can hear and listen to the words of Christ because he was a witness of what Christ did and taught and accomplished. And Peter spent his entire ministry telling people about Jesus. I'm hearing nothing about Jesus here except Jesus apparently made cameo appearances in Peter's story. That didn't say that. There are all kinds of things Jesus could have said, and 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 some of us are real good at coming up with snappy answers and and smart aleck responses and quick put downs in those moments. But but Jesus had none of that. He, in fact, really all he says is, "Hey guys, let's just let's just not tell anyone uh, about this. Let's just keep this between us uh, for now." What? W- what? Let me, okay, let, let me tell you what he's referring to here. It's in the next verses. Okay, so according to Pastor Mike here from LCBC, Peter said something stupid, and Jesus being kind and gracious, because this is grace, um, said, hey, guys, you know, tell you what, let's just keep this between ourselves, and we won't tell anybody about how dumb Peter was. Let me go back. Matthew 17, verse 6. When the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and they were terrified. Jesus came and touched them, saying, Rise, have no fear. And when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, Jesus commanded them, Tell no one the vision until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. And the disciples asked, then why did the scribes say that uh, first Elijah must come? He answered, Elijah does come, and he will restore all things. But I tell you that Elijah has already come, and they did not recognize him. But did did to him whatever they pleased, so also the Son of Man will certainly suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he was speaking to them of John the Baptist. It says, Jesus commanded them, tell no one the vision. doesn't say, tell no one about the dumb thing Peter said. <laughs> come on, let's let's try to... Give him a little bit of honor and respect here. And let's not say anything that'll make him look foolish to the other guys. That's not what the text says. It says, tell no one the vision until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. Now, let me back the tape up just a little bit here. Listen to what Pastor Mike says happened. Because uh, grace reaches out of hand. And sometimes, sometimes grace says nothing at all. 
Uh, even when there's plenty that could be said. We look a few chapters over again in Matthew chapter 17. And uh, when, when Peter wanted to build a roof, remember, uh, we're told Jesus didn't say anything. He didn't tell Peter how. I mean, I think we already Peter knew how dumb it was that he said that as soon as it came out of his mouth. But, but P, Jesus didn't feel like he needed to tell him. He knew he didn't need to tell him. And, and I think Peter would say in that moment, man, that was grace that didn't say that. There are all kinds of things Jesus could have said. And, and, and some of us are real good at coming up with snappy answers and, and smart aleck responses and quick put downs in those moments. But, but Jesus had none of that. He, in fact, really all he says is, hey, guys, let's just, let's just not tell anyone uh, about this. Let's just keep this between us uh, for now. He's not correctly telling the story at all. In fact, he's mistelling the story. This is a complete and supreme Bible twist. He is either lazy or just outright deceptive. This is the, one of the worst handlings of God's word that I've seen in a while. Grace doesn't need to beat you up. When you already know that you're wrong, sometimes grace says nothing at all. Sometimes grace involves a pursuit. But turn a few books over this time to to the right, to the book of John, um, and we'll look at chapter 21. Because John gives us a little bit more detail about what's going on in that space kind of before, after Jesus had risen from the dead and before he ascended up into heaven. And one of the things that Jesus did during that time was he went to track down Peter. Now, you'll remember that Peter swore that he would never leave Jesus. The rest of these guys might run away, but never me. And when the rooster crows for the third time, Peter's on his third denial. And John, in just brutal detail, tells us that Jesus, in that moment, made eye contact with Peter in the courtyard. And it just devastates Peter. And Peter runs. And in that devastation, he goes to do what he knows best. He didn't know anything else to do um, but, to, uh, but to go back to fishing. And um, so he goes back fishing. And, but Jesus pursues him and goes looking for him. And his, his desire is to express forgiveness and the willingness to just kind of move on. And I'll let you read the story on your own. But essentially what Jesus does is he kind of recommissions Peter and he says, he gives him his, his, his life work essentially is to feed my sheep, he says. And so for the rest of the time that we see Peter, we see him feeding the church. He's the one who's, he's the spokesman for the church and he's the, the teacher of the church. And um, Peter would say, you know what? That's what grace looks like to me. Uh, no, Peter would tell you if, when talks, uh, talking about grace, Peter would tell you about Christ's death and resurrection. Would talk to you about the crucifixion and Christ shed blood on the cross. He wouldn't say, he, basically this is just turning Jesus into, you know, a really nice kind of cool guy that, you know, when you make a mistake, he says, ah, oh, let's not focus on that. Let's just move on. Completely skipping the fact that in order to deal with our sin, Jesus had to go to the cross. When Jesus pursued me and, and tracked me down, and, and isn't, that, isn't that true? This is the hard one. I mean, maybe not for you, but for some of us, this, this is the hard one because it, it sure seems like this is the one, this is the moment that really turned the tide for Peter. And when he got set back on the right track, and so I just have to ask myself, and, and I think we all have to ask ourselves, um, when's the last time we showed grace to someone who's betrayed us, who's turned their back on us? Oh, 
man, no, no gospel context at all. Where's the cross and where's Christ? Oh, except for, oh yeah, Jesus is the guy who sets the example for, you know, you just, you just let things go. You, yeah, that, that's grace. Jesus didn't let it go. He went to the cross and atoned for it. Who's dropped the ball, who's, who's uh, walked away. Um, that's what grace looked like to Peter. A couple weeks ago at our baptism gathering in Harrisburg, uh, Bubba was baptized. And so Bubba's walking across the stage, and, and as he's doing that and coming down into the pool, his story's being read. And, and Bub, Bubba's a big guy, as you might imagine. That's how you get the name Bubba. And, and, but Bubba's crying, and so I'm crying, and the whole place is, is, is crying. And, and Bubba goes down, comes up out of the water, and just the whole room just erupts in this roar of cheers and shouts and whistles and screaming. And we do that after every, everyone is baptized. And yet what, what some of the people in the room knew, um, what Bubba knew was that grace involved a pursuit and um, that grace sometimes involves a heavy cost too. And because whenever there's an addiction, there's betrayal and secrecy and deception and, and all kinds of ugly things. And Bubba didn't need a dictionary definition of grace because he saw it in a wife that pursued him and forgave him despite all the stupid things he had done. And he saw it in friends who didn't give up on him and who reached out a hand. And, um, and, and, that, and even after all the stupid stuff he'd done, and, and Bubba would say, you know what grace looks like? I do. That, that, that's what grace looks like. So Peter will tell his audience in First Peter, these experiences that you're having, all this stuff you're going through, some of which you probably are bringing on yourself, these experiences are truly part of God's grace for you. The biblical text says nothing of the sort. I defy any of you to find that for me in First Peter chapter 5. The text doesn't say anything of the sort. This guy's lying. He's either the laziest biblical scholar I've ever heard in my life, or he just knows he's flat-out lying and telling a story that, well, is designed to make people feel good about themselves rather than confront them with their sin and the cross of Jesus Christ, which is the solution for our sin. And I'm not hearing the scandal of the cross here at all. I'm, in fact, I'm, I'm more or less scandalized by the fact that this guy completely is mangling God's word. So let me ask you, what, is, what does grace look like for you? What kind of subjectivizing question is it? What does grace look like for you? Well, you know, you know, grace is like this cool thing. Like, you know, when, like when, I, when I go surfing, man, and, and like while I'm surfing, I, I, I see like these beautiful birds flying over the water because that's what, you know, that, that's so gracious, man. And, and then like when I totally get inside the barrel, like, you know, on, on like a really good wave day, that is like totally grace, man. What is, what's your picture? Uh, when was the time? What's your picture? What's grace look like? This is all subjective. What does the objective word of God teach us what grace is? I am going to lose it. I, I feel it coming. Time when someone reached their hand out to you or when you reached your hand out to someone else. And what, what does grace look like to you? 
Peter got real good at receiving grace and, and he made it, um, and it made him more able to give it too. And can I tell you, uh, uh, Romans three twenty four, and we are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ. Through him, we have aimed uh, obtained at uh, Romans five, two through Jesus. We have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand in which we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Yeah, I get afraid for some of you um, who are not real good at receiving grace. Um, I can't tell you how many times I've heard and people have told me, some of you have told me that you're just not real good at taking help from others. Even when you might need it, you're still not real good at it. And and that you want to be self-sufficient and not feel like you need help from other people. And, And can I tell you, that makes me afraid for you. I'm afraid that you may never put yourself in a place where you might need help. You have your Bibles, open up to First uh, Peter chapter 1. First Peter chapter 1. I want to point something out to you here. Peter talks about grace. Let's see if uh, Peter's dis- description of grace goes with what Pastor Mike from LCBC is uh, preaching here. Um, you know, accepting help. Yeah, that's grace. First Peter chapter 1, verse 1, I read. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect of the dispersion in Pontius, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God, the Father, and the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ, and for sprinkling with his blood, may grace and, the, and peace be multiplied to you. Okay. Good stuff so far. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to his great mercy. He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power you are being uh, are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, which is the salvation of your souls. Concerning this salvation... The prophets, uh, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours, searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but they were serving you in the times that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit, sent from heaven, things to which the angels long to look. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. 
Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Hmm. Yeah, when Peter talks about grace, he kind of focuses us back on Christ and what he's done. Hmm. And and hear me on this one. I'm not sure that you can give grace in the right spirit uh, uh, without being able to receive it. I've got a friend um, whose name is Mike who is uh, learning this lesson. And Mike, in other words, you can only give grace by grace. Gave me permission to, to you can't give grace by works. You have to give grace by grace to tell his story. Isn't it weird that he's talking about grace and the forgiveness of sins isn't being brought up at all? In some of our interactions, and a few months after his wife gave birth to twins, she also con- isn't it weird that he's talking about grace, but Christ's death on the cross, you know what Peter talked about, isn't brought up at all. Contracted mono. And taking care of babies while having mono is exhausting. But, uh, but my friend Mike has this kind of suck it up, put your head down, plow through this kind of attitude. And so he didn't really tell anyone about the, the, the way life had become so challenging and so difficult. And, and one of his other friends found out what was going on. And so her way, as her way of helping out, she recruited a whole bunch of people to, to come over and just do stuff like cut the grass and, and clean the house and feed the babies and bathe the babies and, and stuff like that. And, um, when Jamie and I went over for our shift, uh, they'd been doing this now for well over a week, and, and we still found him struggling with accepting help and finding it hard to just give his friends things to do, like just even walk the dog. And, um, and my fear for, for those of you that are like my friend Mike is that you might never get out of the boat. Just because you're, you might need to, you might need a hand up or you might miss that invitation to the mountain just because you're concerned for what might happen to you there. You might never find yourself. And you might not get out of the boat. You may miss the invitation to the mountain. What are you talking about? Now he's completely allegorized Jesus's Mount of Transfiguration and Peter's walking on the water. Yeah, see, you, oh, oh in a place where you have to stand up for Jesus out of fear that you might need help once you get there. And Peter says, those experiences are a part of God's grace for you. Uh, No, Peter didn't say that at all. That's not true. You're going to find yourself facing things you can't do alone. If you don't let God help you, if you don't let other people help you, um, if you don't let your friends reach out a hand, if you always have to do it on the own, your own without the help of the people that God has placed around you, you're going to miss grace. And I'm afraid for you if you miss grace. Uh, if you listen to this sermon, you're going to completely miss grace. You're gonna, you'll have no concept or clue what biblical grace is. Man, you might never become the person you want to be without having those experiences. Oh, no, not that. Of needing God's grace. It's, it's God's grace that transformed Peter, and it was free, and it was a gift, and he became a new person as a result of it. The Bible says, if anyone, was in Christ, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are... Great. What does it mean to be in Christ? That has hooks into born-again, regeneration, repentance, forgiveness of sins, baptism. Can we talk about what it means to be in Christ? Anyone who is in Christ is a new creation. It doesn't say everybody. It just says everybody in Christ. So what does it mean to be in Christ? New, and Peter became new from the inside out. And, 
He, find, he, he found himself needing grace from Jesus a lot. And, and I really think it was in receiving grace that it compelled Peter to offer grace so freely. And, and after all those experiences. Yeah, like in the book of Galatians when Pete, uh, Paul had to confront Peter to his face because he was acting contrary to the grace of God. Right? Is that what you mean? When he realized after all those experiences where he learned that he really can trust Jesus and we see him doing all kinds of new and crazy things. Trust Jesus for what? To help me become the man I've always wanted to be? Things as a result of that. And we see him extending grace to people in, in just some amazing ways. And let me be clear on this. I, it was grace that compelled Peter to give, to give his life to this thing and to give his life for this thing. It was those experiences of grace that Peter clung to for his life and that carried him through some incredibly difficult times. See, I don't think he minded at all that all those stories were being written down and read and that people were seeing the stories of his mistakes and his blunders and his blusterings. And, and I mean, think about it. They were recorded for literally now billions of people to have read um, because I don't think he looks back at those experiences, and I don't think what he sees is failure. I think he sees grace. I think he looks back, and I don't think he even sees failures anymore. I think he looks back. Really? So he doesn't even see his own sin as sin. He just sees his own sin as grace. This doesn't make any sense. Axon sees the grace of Jesus all along the way in his life. And so, you know what? When he sits in that jail cell and he looks back over a life of freely received and freely offered grace, he thinks, yeah. I'm who I want to be. I would, uh, the Bible doesn't say this at all. Wouldn't change a thing. So, so we met Peter when we started out. He was in his jail cell, and it was the last time that he was in a jail cell. The next day, he and his wife were both crucified, and history records that Peter was forced to watch his wife be crucified um, before before he was. Uh, for he was put to death. And he just, as he struggled for what to say, historians tell us um, what would be his last words to her and, and have no doubt. Listen carefully to Peter's last words to his wife. Because the thing that Peter says to his wife is exactly what he would have said to us. And um, none of the, that, what he says to his wife is worlds apart different than what this guy's been preaching this entire sermon doubt it was a struggle man he's a real guy just like you and me thinking about what would what would we say to our wife in that moment what, what would our last words be um in in those last moments and it was no doubt a struggle and and so and the, what peter came up with uh, was remember the lord right remember the lord the oh man i mean there's so many things you could do with this First of all, it's not in the Bible, but let's just roll, roll with it. Number one, the thing you could really do with this, tie this back to the story of Peter in the boat. Peter walking on the water. Here, his wife is about to experience the storm of her life, for lack of a better way of putting it. She's about to experience the gruesome and horrific pain of crucifixion. Her husband's eyewitness testimony to Christ is going to cost her her life in a very horrible and painful and just 
absolutely devastating death. She's about ready to suffer like you've never, like you couldn't believe. And Peter says to her, remember the Lord. You can almost see the significance of this. Honey, I've walked on the water and I sank because I took my eyes off of Jesus. Keep your eyes on Christ. Remember the Lord. Let that be your dying thoughts and focus as you go through this storm. For he died this kind of death for us. He has redeemed us. He has purchased us. He has paid the penalty for our sins and has graciously forgiven us all of our sins. When you get on the other side of that storm, he will be there. Remember the man that we've walked with, the man who we saw raised from the dead. He's going to be there waiting for you on the other side of this. Remember the Lord. That's what Peter's talking about here. And what was the focus and center of all of Peter's preaching, his entire ministry life? The Lord. What he said, what he did, what he accomplished, and calling sinners to repentance and the forgiveness of sins in Jesus. But that's not what's going on in this sermon. So <clears throat> let's finish up. And so um, after the horror of watching his wife die, Peter was to be crucified. And he didn't want to be crucified like Jesus was. He, he didn't feel like he was worthy to be, to be martyred in the same way that Jesus was. And so he pled with his captors to please don't do that to me. And so they agreed and crucified him upside down rather in the same way. And, and we say, what a terrible tragedy. And, and it is a terrible tragedy uh, unless it inspires us to change. What? It's a terrible tragedy unless it inspires us to change. Change what? How about repent and be forgiven by Christ through his shed blood on the cross? It is a terrible tragedy unless it inspires us to be the people that we want to be. Oh, so Peter's death was all about inspiring us to be the people we want to be. Yeah, but we're sinful by nature. So the person I want to be by my sinful nature, probably different than the guy Christ wants me to be. That, that, to be the people that are, that, that are there, if we just let Jesus chip away the stone, to, to let grace rule. Oh, this is the most powerless, completely worthless sermon I've heard in a while. Rule in our lives. And so, Heavenly Father, would, would you continue? <clears throat> so there's the uh, prayer. Oh, man. Talk about missing the forest because of the tree. The, the Bible, the New Testament's not about Peter. Peter is a witness of Christ. He tells us about Christ. He tells his wife to remember Christ. He points us to Christ and what Christ did for us through his vicarious life, death, and resurrection for us on the cross. Man. And by the way, Christianity's not about you becoming the person you've always wanted to be. That kind of assumes that you're not a sinner by nature and that the thing that you really desire is to be a godly person because that's what you really want to be by nature. Deep down inside, that's all you really want to be. Wrong. 
We're dead in trespasses and sins by nature. We don't want to be godly people. We're a bunch of wretched sinners who invent new ways of doing evil. We need a Savior who calls us to repent and be forgiven of our wickedness and wretchedness. Not an example of somebody who just is, well, you know, gracious. Yeah, talk about missing the point. Need to remind you all, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring this important radio outreach to you as well as to the world. You can partner with us financially by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate, the other says join our crew. When you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute $6.95 to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. And, of course, if you would like to specify the amount that you would like to contribute, you can do so by clicking on the Donate button, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and send it to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. So what'd you think? I'd love to get your feedback. If you'd like to email me, you can. My email address, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian, or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, pirate Christian. Till tomorrow, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Christ and his vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins. Amen. <laughs>